Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Trevor Beaulieu. Trevor is the host of the podcast Champagne Sharks, a show about race, politics, and pop culture through the lens of humor and psychology. The show has released over 300 episodes on a huge range of topics, from Afro-pessimism and social justice to Marvel movies and Tumblr. I've only scratched the surface of the show, but I've really enjoyed the episodes I've listened to so far. Check out the show notes for a few of my favorites. Trevor's many appearances on Chapo Trap House are also well worth a listen. On today's episode, we discuss our experience with the pandemic so far, the insanity that is the U.S. stock market during COVID, why Trevor thinks Black people can't afford to be totally anti-capitalist, the distinctions between social democracy and socialism, Trevor's firsthand experience with racism in Scandinavia, how fragile any kind of liberal democracy is, how Trevor started Champagne Sharks, how Chapo Trap House is like the Daily Show for new left podcasts, the willingness to look into the political abyss, how the right prioritizes property over people's lives, the recent uprisings over police violence against black people, whether nonviolent protests are more effective, and why Killmonger from Black Panther was right. You can find Trevor on Twitter at Ricky Rawls and Champagne Sharks at Champagne Sharks. Links are in the show notes. As always, I'm on Twitter at Garrison Lovely. Uh, here is Trevor Beaulieu. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, sounds like it's going to be a good time. Yeah, so you just had asked about uh, my quarantine experience Um and yeah, I mean, all things considered, been very lucky, uh, been able to work from home. I work at a nonprofit doing tech uh, stuff for them. So my job hasn't been affected too much. Um, cool. Yeah, I've been seeing friends outside while the weather is still good. And uh, uh, when you say seeing them, like, uh, what have you been doing? Like uh, parks. Drinking, parks, drinking outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rooftops, parks, stuff like that. Um, That's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, and I've been really fortunate, like nobody in my immediate friends or family has been uh, really affected by COVID. Uh, I do know some like friends of friends and stuff who have lost people. Um, and then a lot of people have lost their jobs and, uh, it's been really tough to see, but all things considered, um, just been very fortunate. And, uh, my, the nonprofit I work at is called give directly and we've done some COVID response stuff. Um, and before this, I was just like a sellout at a startup. So I would have felt really shitty if I was still just like <laughs> working for the man and something really crazy happened and I like didn't feel like I could do much um, or at least was putting most of my energy towards, you know, something else that wasn't really helping. Um, so in that, in that respect, I've been pretty, pretty fortunate. Oh, um, ha- oh I was going to say one thing I find weird is that um, I feel like people have kind of stopped even people kind of stopped even trying to figure out what the answer is. I Like when it first started, there was all this pressure and every week Como or Trump were saying like, you know, by this date, by this date, people were demanding like, when's it going to open? I noticed like no one says anything anymore. Like, like it's just people have just kind of, it's kind of sunk in like, okay, this is going to be the new normal for who knows how long. Yeah. Yeah. I think when, so I, my last day in the office was like mid March, and it was kind of like, a, okay, like we're going to go work from home for a little bit. And then like the people who were really following it were like, uh, we're not going back to the office this year. And, you know, that's that's true so far. Uh, we might go back in January, but um, it's still yeah, not even set. People were saying that from the beginning. And I think they were all getting dismissed because I know people were saying that, too. And I was like, yeah, OK, whatever. No way to let everything <laughs> close uh, 
that long. But yeah, they they were right. People were following it all along, kind of uh, realizing what it was. And I think what's going to be really crazy is if and when um, the stock market really starts registering it too. Like like right yeah. now, the Dow Jones and the Standards and Poor and stuff are pretty high, but they're really only high because a handful of tech companies with uh, weird ways of uh, recording revenue and stuff. Because a lot of those tech companies, they don't just sell a product and have somebody buy it. They have all the things like Facebook and stuff have all these weird ways of uh, registering success. So from what I've been seeing, a handful of tech companies and other companies are making up for everything else that's kind of lagging. And it gets kind yeah. of given the kind of people who look at that stuff to stay calm. Uh, an idea that America's still doing great because we have a lot of weirdos who, even though they have no stocks, they think as long as the stock market is doing well, then it's not bad yet, you know? And yeah. um, once like that stops and the reality catches up to all of the market, I think a, a lot of people are going to go, going to go crazy. Like, I don't know why it is that people who own those stocks, look at the Dow Jones for the sanity, but a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't understand how I haven't followed it too closely, but like the market basically thinks the economy looks as good as it did like a year, a year or two ago. Um, if you look at like valuation, right? Like the overall. Oh, 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 oh yeah. It's, it's setting new records. Like, like yeah. it's actually higher than it was pre COVID, which is nuts. Is, is it really as bad? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I took my money out of stocks like in October, I think. Um, oh, good, good move. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, maybe it would have been better to keep them in and just hold it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, 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 I mean, it might have been better, but I feel like at some point it's going to. Okay, well, well, let me say this. I think what you did was rational. I guess we just underestimated how irrational uh, the market was going to be. You know, yeah. but yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it it does seem crazy. Like I, it seems like. The economy is the worst it's ever been in my lifetime by a huge amount. If you look oh, at like yeah. unemployment, bankruptcies, uh, evictions, like so, so many things. And the full effects of this have not really registered yet because we've had like some level of government intervention. It's really unprecedented, actually. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't really know like what people are expecting to happen um, when like more outbreaks happen as things reopen too early, which has like already been the case. Um, yeah, I I think know, it happened, just, it happened it in Texas, right? Uh, wasn't Texas one of the places that didn't take it too seriously and had to um, take yeah. a hit because of it? Yeah, yeah and then you, New York is like actually one of the safest places in the country now. If you look yeah. at like cases as a uh, percentage of population, um, and there's debates about whether like New York has even reached herd immunity, um, which like I don't feel qualified to say, but yeah, it is uh, it is a case that a lot of people here have gotten it, and it seems like people can't get it again. Um, at least not in the time horizon that we've seen so okay, far. So I, oh, so that, that's good to know. That's good to know, at least. I mean, um, for me, I've been like working from home too, but um, I've been going outside, taking walks, trying to stay sane. And then every now and then, like since like the bars and stuff reopened, I'll bring like an iPad and I'll sit outside and drink outside, you know, for like a half hour or an hour. And in some ways it almost makes you feel worse than sitting at home. Like for, in, in a strange way, like getting the sun being outside feels better, but in some ways it almost feels like worse. Cause you, you're like, well, wow, this is such a poor substitute. Like it's, it's better <laughs> than nothing, but 
it, it, I, I was just thinking, like, is this really going to be it, like, forever? Like, meet some friends with some masks on and, you know, sit around for a bit and go back home. And I, I don't know. Like, but what can you do? I mean, people have lived through Black Death and, like, <laughs> real problems in human history. Like, I feel like we've been so relatively uh, pampered by human history. Like, you know, we lose it really um Easy. Yeah. 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 So. No, I mean, contemporary life, like all the trappings of contemporary life in a, a rich country are so contingent on so many things working. Um, and I don't know, this is like, a, and as far as pandemics go, like this kills a very small percentage of people compared to other diseases. And oh, yeah. I mean, there's like trade offs between how deadly a disease is and how much it will spread. Um, so this might have actually been like easier to spread because fewer people died from it and it took longer to you know, take it seriously. Um, can, you, can you imagine if a Great Depression happened now, like a 10-year Great Depression? Because I feel like a couple of months of, you know, a recession and people really, really... Um, I, I think the way people are, are wired now, I think there's just going to be shootings everywhere. If, if we have to do like a multi-year depression, I think uh, there's going to be like a Civil War Part Two. I think it's going to get really, really bad. Um, yeah, Electric yeah. Bugaloo, right? That's the one of the new groups now is uh, yeah. trying to bring the next civil war about. Is um, is is that their, is that their deal? Like, yeah, it's it's uh, a play on the like old like some sequel like whatever to Electric Bugaloo. Um, yeah, and so these Bugaloo boys are are trying to bring about civil war part two. Um, Inter- but, interesting. Yeah, I, we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to start off with um asking about how you came to your current political beliefs and like how you would define your politics now. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. I get called a, a leftist a lot, but um, I won't really call myself that, uh, but I am sympathetic to a lot of uh, leftist policies and beliefs. I mean, one reason why I don't want to call myself that is because I don't really understand the whole theory and doctrines like behind it and stuff i don't want to pretend that i do i've read i've read um marx communist manifesto and i was interested in reading like uh, capital i was going to read that uh next but i do believe that i don't believe in laissez-faire capitalism like i i am relatively anti anti-capitalist um the one thing that i think really i think sets me apart from a hardcore socialist is that I do believe that particularly for black people, because they have no generational uh, wealth the way a lot of um, white people do, including white socialists. Like I don't really think um, black people can afford to be totally anti-capitalist. I think they have to figure out and be pragmatic what they have to do now, because a lot of these white socialists, you know, they might have a parent, who's going to give them a house. They might have um, some money they're going to inherit. Um, They might have, even if it's not a huge bunch of generational wealth, even if they're downwardly mobile, I think on average, uh, a lot of white socialists have um, some kind of safety net that they can rely on in this capitalist system while they're waiting or trying to create um, a socialist reality. Whereas I think like, like I'll give you an example. Uh, in the 2000s, when uh, 
the hipster thing was uh, happening in earnest, like, you know, in, in the arts when, in Williamsburg and stuff. Yeah. I, one thing I'll always remember is there were a lot of, like, uh, white hipsters and there were, like, black hipsters on the scene. And everybody was kind of cosplaying as broke, you know. And a lot of people were baristas. A lot of people were waiters doing stuff like that. And the thing that I always remember was uh, when it started getting old and when people started wanting to have families and stuff, uh, you started finding out who had trust funds. Um, <laughs> people's parents were buying them buildings and stuff. And I remember like um, some friends of mine who were like black hipsters, you know, they were like, oh, wow. Uh, I was doing it when I was really broke. A lot of people weren't really uh, broke, you know, and we were just playing around and hanging out and seeing these bands and doing all this stuff. But meanwhile, they had a safety net and, and I didn't. So, um, I do believe in, I do believe capitalism creates inequality by design. Like it's a feature, not a bug. I think when it's working quote unquote, right. Um, the income gap is real. It's not capitalism. I mean, it, it does grow Mm -hmm. and it grows by design and it's not, capitalism not working correctly I, I believe in thomas piketty i think i think yeah. that's what capitalism is supposed to do i think um that you should not be shamed out of asking government to do things for you because rich people do it all the time we just saw it again with these trillions that were given to the bailout without hesitation tarp ha- happens the car industry happens the, you know, the banking industry gets bailed out um corporations and banks and the car the car companies get bailed out left and right you should not be shamed out of asking for your government to take care of you the government that you pay a higher proportion of your taxes to than say jeff bezos you know (laughs) yeah yeah you should not be ashamed of that like you know that whole bootstraps thing they don't live by it themselves if they lived and fell by their own merits a lot of these companies would have been out of business by now you know without without bailouts so i'm sorry this is kind of a long-winded answer to what you asked but um basically i i'm anti-capitalist i believe in a lot of uh socialist ideas i believe in redistributive policies and i believe that the rich should pay their fair share. Um, another reason why I don't call myself a socialist, because when I talk to a lot of socialists, there doesn't seem to be a consensus as to what they want. Like, I feel like socialism means different things to different people. So I, I don't really know what's even meant. Like, for example, I had some friends who were socialists and they were kind of arguing about it. And one person was talking about they want like hard redistribution, like they want, you know, like seize the money and the wealth of the richest people, uh, communal property, no private property, et cetera. And then some people seem like what they want is, I think it's called democratic socialism or social or democracy. Social democracy, which yeah, is like yeah, capitalism I, with rules and like uh, large welfare states. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like rich people can exist or whatever, but they just need to pay progressively more than everyone else. So everyone can do all their capitalism, get get rich, but you're going to pay at the wazoo if you're rich. And some people are like, no, uh, 
if I had my way, rich people would be illegal, like, you know, basically. So, yeah, yeah so I really don't understand exactly um, what different people mean when they say socialism or what the different, because uh, from what I understand, even democratic socialism and social Democrats are not quite exactly the same thing either. Yeah. 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 I, I think like the, the big difference is just uh, whether capitalism and whether class would still exist in like the ideal society. And a social Democrat would point to like Scandinavia and say like, these are the best societies we've constructed thus far. Um, you know, there's like really strong social safety net, redistributive policies, um, but capitalism and like private ownership of companies is still like the driving force of the economy. And it's complicated by the fact that like Norway, the government owns like a very large percentage of public wealth um, or of, of total wealth is, is public. And the government runs a lot of the biggest companies as well. And those companies are like accountable to the citizens in a way that like a private company is sort of accountable to shareholders, but it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the socialists would say like, okay, but yeah, Sweden and Norway still have like classes. There's still like a lower class and an upper class. There's still a, a bourgeoisie and a proletariat. Um, and we want to get rid of class entire, entirely. Like we think that class hierarchy is unjustified. Um, and whenever you leave a ruling class, like they will try and take more power and uh, undermine the system uh, that gives people like a modicum of, of prosperity and equality. Um, and, and I think like I, I used to be more of a social Democrat and, and moved into the democratic socialist camp. Um, and, you know, I, I do think like the best societies so far and a lot of metrics are the Scandinavian societies. There's some debate over like whether they could exist without a global underclass providing you know, cheap goods um, and and selling them to, to those markets. Um, and then there's also like questions of like, yeah, whether it's sustainable um, and it's like whether those kind of societies can uh, welcome like immigration and still maintain like the, the kind of uh, safety nets and, and things that they've built because some people argue that those safety nets are only possible when everybody kind of looks the same and feels like a strong yeah. sense of identity with, with their country. The yeah, their I... Country. I I remember that debate about, uh, you know, and when people say, like, you know, it looks the same, uh, they're basically being, well, at least the, the right wingers do, uh, racially homogenized and culturally homo- homogenized and relatively high levels of education. I, I visited um, Sweden, Stockholm, a while ago. It was probably over 10 years at this point. And one thing that really surprised me was how classism was way more worn on its sleeve and class resentment was way more open and easy to talk about over there. Like, like I feel like America does not have a very good, very evolved class vocabulary. I think it's still learning it. And I think it's because race has been such a stand in for class for so long. It's become kind of something that's allowed a lot of people to obscure even from themselves their class realities, you know, because a lot of people kind of feed on those like hidden wages of whiteness. I think as I think David Rodinger um, put it. And what's very interesting about when I was there was that the immigrant thing was building. And I would not be surprised if just like America is becoming more class conscious, if uh, the racism, maybe it has happened already. I haven't kept up with the news, but I would not be surprised if 
a sense of white identity or white nationalism or um, race-based politics starts becoming more um, common there because you can really see a lot of open resentment over what they saw as the encroaching of um, of immigrants, particularly like like uh, Muslims, um, especially like um, the African Muslims too. Yeah, and and did you experience any racism when when you were visiting Sweden? No, not no, not really, because you know what was interesting with them. But remember, this is a while ago, and I got and my gut, my feeling, right? Uh, well, this is what it was like when when I was there. Because I was American, I was like uh, the cool guy, mm. you know. Like, like they like black American people. They like American um, black people. So they say me. They think, oh, New York. They think, uh, oh, tell us what 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 hip hop is like there. Uh, you know, they thought like I was uh, really cool. It wasn't like I looked and dressed like the black people that they had there. Especially because a lot of the black people there are east african so they have a certain type of look to them they have a certain certain way and they're used to like um seeing like black people from europe and and america and you know treating them a little bit different so it was kind of like i was treated pretty nicely but just doing how history works and everything i feel like as more and more non-white people uh, are coming and immigrating there and there's like that feeling of uh, like like this over here like white genocide like that fear of um of of losing that cultural identity i suspect if it hasn't happened already that that type of difference would matter less and less like you know if, if i went there they might be on higher alert and not care as much um, if I'm from America, or if I'm from Somalia, you know, like, like, um, we're just sick of all of you, you know, like, I feel like that's how, I feel like that's how these things kind of go when they go in stages, you know, like they don't have the luxury in their mind of making these distinctions anymore. And mm. I've heard some stories like that, like some, some, uh, American tourists I read in a story got beat up at this bar, um, cause they thought he was, Either he was flirting with women or the women they were flirting with him and they like, you know, beat him up. And when I was there, I had been to that same bar that was in the story. And when I was there, I feel like that wouldn't have happened. So when I read that story, I, I took a mental note like, okay, I think things are changing. Interesting. Yeah, that that's unfortunate. Um Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's a part of the world I haven't visited and very curious about because, you know, in, in so many ways they are like really doing the best on a lot of measures of you know, how you measure a country. Um, but yeah, xenophobia uh, does seem to be an issue. Although, I don't know, I, I think the immigration politics there are probably better than they are in America right now. Um, like, I, I do think having a certain level of humanity or uh, kind of just like a certain level of prosperity for everybody uh, yeah. probably makes your politics a bit more humane because maybe like less scarcity mindset. Um, where it's like I've got mine and like I need to protect it, right? Like if you have a lot less, you might be uh, more yeah. resistant to that. I'm not convinced about that because, I mean, it's known for being very tolerant on the books, but the people there were really racist. Mm. But you know, what was weird about them 
they were treating me, you know, the kind of attitude they were kind of having to me was, oh, you're one of the good ones. You're an American, mm. which is kind of a, a weird way to think, because usually like American people get like a bad rap. But I think one reason they like American black people, too, is that they think, hey, you are a reminder that um, of how we view ourselves like, uh, oh, we're so much more enlightened than um, Americans. Americans are so racist. And and in addition to like you having like that uh, soft power of, you know, culture that that we like, you know, um, they're asking me all these like questions about culture and stuff. we get to use you as um, a way to show how enlightened we are. Like, like you know, we're not racist like those Americans. So it's kind of like they want to impress me to a degree. But mm-hmm. then when I'm talking to them, they would just casually say the most heinous things about African people. Mm. Like very, or, or Muslim people, Arabs, they would just say it. Like they didn't even have the practice of using dog whistles like it was yeah. so new to them so they were just saying stuff like you know uh when we were inside like the bar and we're talking and i was talking to strangers there would be like some africans coming to the door and then like the people i was talking to were like uh um africans you know and then like, i mean like a look and it goes oh no trust me you wouldn't like them either they're they're, they're different <laughs> I, was, I was like whoa wow. that's like really that's like that's really racist right and they couldn't get why i was racist they didn't they didn't really see it that way. And I think they were kind of able to have this elevated idea of themselves because they had never been tested, you yeah. know, it had never been put to the test. Because if you see like one black person every month, you know, it's very easy to think of yourself as very uh, enlightened. But now when you have to try to absorb them and figure out to what degree they should assimilate or you're willing to accept them not assimilating, then um it gets kind of harder to like i think a lot of their racial enlightened idea racially enlightened ideas are very theoretical uh or, or were very theoretical and again i have not kept up with what's happened in that area since but i do know this i know that in scandinavia and parts of europe the type of far right parties that um are similar to what Donald Trump is is like, have been happening there for like a while now. Like uh, whether it's uh, the people leading the whole Brexit thing and that guy, what's his name, Geert Van? Oh, Geert uh, Van. Oh man, um, I'll, I'll look it up. But I know who you're the talking Dutch, about. Yeah, the Dutch guy, like, Geert, Geert people, Wilders, I think. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Like they were ahead of the curve on that, on that Trump thing. Like with their, with their immigrants, they, they, uh, there's a lot of like these national front type people there. And, and the casual people drop little things that make me think that there's a lot of closet, same as a lot of closet mega people here. I, I suspect there's, uh, a growing closet, um, national front type thing happening in a lot of those countries. Like a lot of those people, they get some pretty high, voter turnouts and i don't think all those people are just unwashed uh rubes you know yeah yeah no i mean it, this is like a national or international trend right of like the far yeah. right and like these white nationalists uh, xenophobic revanchist parties are, are doing well 
around the world and and not only in white countries like just authoritarianism in general is oh is yeah the philippines yeah yeah um, and, and, and i think doing everything through the lens of white supremacy will like cause you to miss some things like in countries where there's not a clear like racial component to the yeah. um, the kind of divisions or it doesn't exist in the same way that it does in the united states um yeah no it's yeah, yeah modi it's yeah yeah modi yeah. is a good example right yeah where you've got people who like in the United States would be, you know, are people of color, but it's like the dominant party and in, in group in India. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, it seems like uh, what I think there was a Felix Biederman of, of Chapa Trap House that said at like, one point, you know, maybe like liberal democracy and like cosmopolitanism is just like this really anomalous thing in human history. And the reality is that like most people are really, really xenophobic and, bigoted and tribal and, and uh just really resistant to all the things that make like an open society work um and this is just like we're living through an exceptional time in that it was oh, possible at all i totally agree i mean i think even just this middle class that we kind of take for granted and think we're entitled to is a very anomalous thing uh most of american history I did not excuse me have a middle class most of i think um Industrial history. I mean, from the time of agriculture, I don't think a middle class has been a real um, strong force. But now we take it for granted, like we're supposed to have it. Politicians talk about, you know, what's owed to the middle class and everything. And yeah. I, I mean, the history is uh, debatable. But the way I understand it, like basically, the idea of America as a superpower and the superpower is pretty much post World War Two, and the idea of a big strong middle class is pretty post-World War II. Like, before, from what I read, before World War II, like, there was not a big, huge middle class the way we have now. Like, the baby boomers and all those programs, GI Bill, FHA, FHA, creation of the suburbs. Like, like that's another reason why I think this whole idea of bootstrapism is so, such bullshit. And yeah. when I see, yeah, because the government basically created, I mean, the combination of what I understand is um, the fall of a lot of the original first world powers, you know, after World War II, when they were shadows of themselves and rebuilding uh, and the whole Marshall Plan and everything and America's ability to come out of that unscathed relatively uh, combined with the uh, deliberate push to create like a middle a middle class um, created this anomalous thing that because most of us and most of our parents grew up with it. Uh, think it's like normal, like it's always it's always been. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. My read is, is very similar from like APUS history uh, back in the day. Like we win World War Two. I mean, the Russians did most of the work, but exactly. Don't say that in an American history class. Um, <laughs> and then uh, there was a GI Bill, which gave like education and housing. Uh, I think loans or grants to people who fought in the war. And since basically everybody had participated in the war effort in the United States, like a huge chunk of the country got access to social democratic safety net. Black people were historically excluded, um, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. Uh, but this was combined with like America's industrial capacity was the highest it had ever been. And then yep. Europe had been just bombed to ruins as had like a lot of Russia and China and Japan. So you have like this one country that can make everything. Uh, we recognized that we needed to like not just cripple everyone else's economy following the war like we did the first time with the Treaty of Versailles and then a uh, huge workforce and uh, 
education and housing to support it. And, and labor, too. I mean, that's when people had pensions. Like mm-hmm. Pensions were normal. Labor unions were strong. Not so much for black people, but um, they were strong. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really – I mean, the level to which people don't even understand – what they owe to government, like like a lot of these people who are so scared of socialism or big government, like have no idea the extent to which uh, government has made the current lifestyles uh, possible. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I want to switch gears a little bit um, and just ask about Champagne Sharks. Um, how did you come up with the idea for the show? What are you trying to do with it? Um, y'all have been really successful so far ton ton of people on patreon and put out like hundreds of episodes um great guests so just curious to hear a bit more about the the origins and the process well basically um i was just tweeting a lot and so were people like will meniger and some other people uh, uh, will meniger and i used to follow each other i mean we still do but we used to follow each other and crack jokes along with some other people and like he was just a guy that I thought was pretty was pretty funny, along with uh, some other people. So I forgot like the running jokes that we had, but I think one thing was like uh, too much coffee boys and stuff like that. There was just like some dumb jokes. So then when I saw he was starting a podcast, there were various people that I followed on Twitter who would start podcasts, do three or four episodes, and some of them would be very good, and then they would just die. Yeah. So so. He announced he was doing a podcast, and I was like, "Oh, okay, let's see." And I just thought it'd just be like, you know, some funny jokes or whatever. And when I listened to the podcast, I was surprised how good it was. It was pretty fully formed, in my opinion. the The audio quality wasn't there yet, but it was pretty uh, fully formed, and I got like hooked right away. I thought the the balance of comedy and um, and politics was pretty good and i liked also how what i really liked about it was that it was it kind of gave a voice to something that i think is kind of taken for granted now because i think they've done a lot to kind of create their own base like i think they started out um and i was telling matt chrisman this where i think they started out um servicing an existing base that had nothing being targeted toward them yeah yet you know and the, the, the dirt bag left right as it was christened in the new yeah. york and and this yeah. is the chapo trap house the podcast um yeah yeah uh yeah i think i think the chapo trap house uh pretty much ended up um servicing like a audience that um probably a lot of people didn't even know that there, that there was that they were part of an audience you know that they had yeah. so many other people like themselves out there. Like I think a lot of people felt kind of seen and heard, but I think, and this is what I was talking about Christmas is that I think they went from when I was talking to him, I likened it to like a Marvel movie where I said when Marvel movies first started, they were um, servicing a lot of um, existing superhero comic fans, both active and lapsed. And they made a certain amount of money um, and, success from that but then when they got pretty popular they ended up actually creating a a whole bunch of superhero fans um including uh people who probably never even picked up a comic book at all and and 
now they're at the point where I think probably um, 80% of the Marvel movie fans are people who got into um, comic books or superheroes uh, through the movies. And yeah. like maybe like 20% is actually um, um, the comic book fans. And I was saying, like, I feel like you guys, like, talking to them are that for people who are, like, media nerds and into, like, leftist politics, where you guys started out, like, um, with the base of people who are already that, and then a lot of people started trying it and finding it cool and ended up becoming media nerds or ended up becoming uh, leftists off of off of that. But I'm uh, to get to your question, you know, I listened to his podcast and I re- really liked it. And I, from the beginning, I was like, wow, I think this thing's going to be uh, pretty big. And then they eventually, when they uh, invited invited me on, and when they invited me on, I was pretty nervous, and it ended up going really well. And then a lot of people really liked the episode, and then I got a whole bunch of followers on Twitter, and then people kept asking me to um, do a podcast. I think I might have done one more episode of the show before um, I launched the podcast, but the co-host I have, one of them, uh, Mario... He had been bugging me about let's do a podcast together for a while. And I just kept putting it off. I'm like, I don't think anyone's going to want to hear, hear me or us do a podcast. There's too many podcasts out there and nobody <laughs> really going to care what we have to say. But then after the um, Chapo thing went so well, I went back to him. I said, if you still want to do this, um, you know, let's let's give it a shot. Because every day people like I think this is a good time to strike because now we have all these Twitter followers and interesting stuff. So. Yeah, that was basically how it started. Sorry, it was such a roundabout uh, answer, but I think I brought it back to. Yeah, the yeah. yeah, no, no, that, that's interesting. I, I think it's kind of funny. As you're saying this, I'm realizing that like Chapo Trap House is kind of like the daily show for new yeah. left podcasts because Champagne Sharks, you guys got a big boost um, from, from going on there. Then uh, yeah. uh, what True Anon the uh, podcast um, that's breaking down like the Jeffrey Epstein story in, in enormous amount of detail. Um, they've been big pushers of that. And, and true, uh, true Anon is now like one of the biggest podcasts in the world as well. Um, yeah, and I'm sure they've inspired a ton of others uh, just through like, you know, for context, Chapo is the most successful um, show on Patreon. They pull in like over a million dollars a year um, just from people, you know, chipping in five bucks to hear the weekly episodes that are just behind the paywall. Um, and yeah, no, for me, like they, they created an audience in me because I was definitely like left leaning, but not like a leftist before I started listening to Chapo and, um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, those definitely... ideas for the first time really in a way that was compelling to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say probably the same for me as in, um, a friend of a friend of our show, Andre, uh, Domis, he, he, uh, he created this thing called uh, Resistance Noir, but Andre Domis has a lot of the same interests as the Chapo guys. Like, when I was talking to him, I kind of figured out what it was. Like, like the same way people who were into um, Marvel comics before Marvel movies happened, they have their favorite comic book series, they have their favorite uh, seminal graphic novels and stuff, but somebody who only got into it through... Um, the movies, you know, won't really know a lot of the stuff. And it's, it's interesting. Um, Andre was co-hosting with me when we had uh, Matt Christmas, Matt Christman on. And 
I started realizing, okay, these guys kind of digested or were into the same stuff, like that same, you know, so they were talking about all these blogs and I didn't realize how many of the quote unquote characters of like the media universe, like Matt Iglesias and all these people were bloggers that everybody read, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Ezra Klein. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear like the, the deep lore. So they were kind of like talking about, oh, did you read this blog in the 2000s? Oh, yeah, I used to read this political blog. Did you read that one? And I was um, kind of lost, you know. And I think in the beginning, like people like that were um, who was being appealed to. But I think the rest of us, people like me and you, probably heard a lot of these names for the first time um, through them. And I had to research a lot. Like, I'm like, okay, who is uh, Rod Dreher? You know, uh, <laughs> it's another character to research. I had to research. Uh, I had to research him. You know, um, someone in my new like, like Megan McArdle, I've come across back in the day. She was always she was always terrible. But yeah, a lot of the people they talked about were just like people had to learn the whole like backstory of. And yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is like there'll be people that like you know they're not household names by any means. Um, you know, maybe the most famous people they talk about on a regular basis are like David Brooks, you know, people with like a New York Times column, but yeah. even Rod Dreher, like huge audience, right? Uh, these guys that you might not have heard of, it's kind of like, you know, Rush Limbaugh has a massive audience on his radio show and you can be like, oh, that guy's like a right wing blowhard. I don't care what he has to say, but like a lot of people do care what he has to say. And yeah. I, what I think like what Chapo does really well is, uh, stares into the abyss and like like Matt Crispin doing LSD at, at CPAC, the conservative political action <laughs> yeah. conference, like that is uh, just so hardcore. And, you know, I, I think like I, I was talking to a friend this weekend and, and he's like pretty, uh, I don't know, blase about American politics right now. Uh, he's Canadian and like uh, we, he has different intuitions than I do about a lot of these things. And I think like if you're not following it as closely as like the nerds, you might think that things are like, Oh, like we went through the Iraq war. We went through like the financial crisis. Like this isn't that different, but like, I, I think it really is distinct. Uh, I think Trump is like uniquely uh, dangerous to like our political institutions. And, and this is like a very pivotal election, like more than any other. Um, and yeah, just like the, the willingness to go and look at like what the far right is, is actually like in person and like what kind of things are normal for them. Um, and we're seeing that play out now on the streets of, of our cities where like political violence is I think becoming more and more of a normal thing to happen and getting defended by the president of the United States. Um, when it's his supporters killing protesters, like that's, that's a new thing. Um, and that's, that's really scary. You know, what's really crazy about it is to see so many notable people on the right, basically like what's that? What's that? Tucker Carlson called that call that written house guy. Yeah. Uh, a, a hero basically and it's like wow like like the dog whistles are gone yeah and things came out like him beating up a girl or something and having people having to intervene they didn't care who was this like, carlton uh, cal cal written cal, cal, cal oh, really yeah there's a video that came out of him like not too long ago beating up a girl in public and people had to intervene <laughs> and this is after carlson called him um a hero and yeah, Carlson said like, like he felt like he had to step in and maintain order where no one else was and so like yeah. in that uh analogy maintaining order is like shooting and killing two protesters and, and really injuring a, a third 
and and the details yeah. of the case are murky enough that like you know conservatives can look at it as like self-defense or whatever this guy's like a hero which is starting to happen um but you know the reality is that he brought an assault rifle to a protest and defended property quote unquote and and now two people are dead because like he was clearly uh on one side of the fight and and threatening people just just by his presence with a with a gun and what's funny like these are the same people that claim like um teachers should be able to storm um gunmen you know and it's mm. it's acceptable you know that should be part of their job duties but um when when protesters um try to defend themselves against somebody with a gun it's like you know why are they doing that for they should you know yeah well because he's on their side of the fight right exactly exactly and yeah i mean like there's videos of police officers the night of the shooting giving water to kyle rittenhouse and other uh right-wing militia men holding assault rifles and saying hey thanks we really appreciate everything that you're doing um he went on to kill people that night and and it's it's even after they killed him, they, they didn't really seem to be too stressed about it. He tried like, to turn himself in and they didn't apprehend him right away. It's Yeah, which is nuts. It, it I, is I mean, a guy walks back to his car and gets shot seven times. Yeah. Because he's so dangerous. Meanwhile, a guy with a gun yeah. just finished shooting people. Yeah. And you can't bring yourself to even even arrest him. Like, it's it's it's, re- it's, it's really nuts. Somebody made a great point. I can't take credit for this. I can't remember who it was. It was just some rando on Twitter. But someone said that... Um, in America, um, um, murdering somebody uh, because it, they um, they hurt property is okay, but hurting property because somebody was murdered is not okay. Yeah, yeah, and it, that really kind of drives home how, how like backwards, how how backwards uh, it, it is, like like the extent to which. I, I mean, I think it really indicts capitalism too, like the extent to which property is worth more than uh life than people like you know in defense of property you can do anything and everything up until murder and it's considered like like acceptable but yeah. you know when it, comes, when it comes to murder um hurting property is a bridge too far to, to cross it's it's really it's really twisted yeah yeah i was actually just getting to some arguments on, on facebook about looting and this person was making the point that like, you know, if, if you think looting is politically defensible or, or ethically defensible, then like you should volunteer to have your like own home or business uh, be looted first. And I, I guess like the, the point that I've seen made and, and what I agree with is like, if you look at wage theft um, or other types of like violations done by employers, it's, it's so much larger in terms of dollar amounts than all the robberies, like all the normal yep. types of like theft and crime that you would see like put together. Um, and this is like an old statistic, but I, I'd imagine it still holds true, um, even taking into account like an uptick in, in looting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at people like, oh, are people saying that, like really saying that like killing people for looting is justified? And then I pointed them to the phrase, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is oh, yeah. since the 60s. And, and the fucking president tweeted it. Like this is a but, case but where you're prioritizing you see, oh, property over human lives, right? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, oh, no, it's okay. Um, just so you know, um, occasionally you freeze up. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't realize you're freezing up, so I think you stopped talking. So <laughs> that's why I'm occasionally uh, interrupting you. No, because, no, all good. Yeah, I think you stopped talking, and then suddenly I realize, oh, no, he's actually frozen. So <laughs> sorry about that. No worries. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, even with the Cal Rittenhouse thing, a lot of people were using the defensive property as an excuse for what he did. So, I mean, we even see it there. And like you said, with the president, he was saying it. But this is why I think it's very interesting. They act like the property damage is happening in a vacuum, as in one day people are just waking up and saying, you know what? I'm pissed at the world. Let's destroy some property. But these things always happen after, A, somebody gets um, unjustly killed in a horrifying way, and B, they don't want to bring the person to justice. Yeah. Um, and when you take that into account, I mean, like, there's very few um, just random riots happening. So it's kind of like, I don't know why these people keep talking about what well, you think, like, rioting or is okay i'm like well do you think killing um unarmed people and then not prosecuting anybody uh even though it's, it's blatantly uh extrajudicial murder like do you think that's okay like the fact that they can just overlook that and just jump straight to the looting and, and also like that it doesn't occur to them like hey maybe the easier way than doing all this stuff to police the looting and to um these these vigilante fantasies is to just a not extrajudicially kill people and b like punish people when they do but yeah apparently that's beyond the pale that's <laughs> you can you can consider everything but that which i find uh fascinating that that's just it's not just like beyond the pale it's not even in their imagination like it's not even like you suggest it like oh no that's too much like you can talk with them for hours it won't even come up as an idea yeah to stop that stuff it's yeah, I mean, I guess let me ask you, do you think that the instances of, of like mass looting and, and burning down stores, like, do you think that helps or hinders or just has no effect on like the, the cause of the overall protests? I mean, I think one thing that is um, gets lost in all these discussions is that everything has to be like all or nothing, especially social media. So I think it's like um, when you say that you think things help, then people say what you said uh, that someone had told you is like would you, would you like your house to get looted or you think it's fair to this store and to give you an example and it's like um nothing is ever like a perfect solution but at the same time the things that cause these problems get a lot of people innocent people sucked in too like yeah it's not fair that um innocent person got looted but it's not fair that innocent person got knelt on for nine minutes till they died you know like so what I'm going to say is like with that caveat that I know that um, people who have done nothing wrong get sucked into these things sometimes, including and if and if I got sucked into one of these things where um, my place got looted or I lost property, I'd be pissed too. But I would be more pissed at the government for you know like I would be more pissed at the government for letting me and so many other citizens lose all our shit and get into all this trouble. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if you care. Oh about yeah. You, you can curse as much as you want. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like that they view my, my property, everyone's property, um, all this damage and stuff as, um, just a couple of eggs that you break um, for the purpose of keeping a couple of killer cops out of jail. Like, like you know, like, 
it the discourse never really goes in that in that direction so like to answer your question like i do think i do think um it helps because the only place so far that really got their police uh defunded or at least had it the conversation go to furthest was where george floyd died in that and they were doing a lot of property damage they were doing um uh a lot of getting getting upset and getting angry but the places that everyone was lauding as protests done right all that happened was the protests had dissipated you know um mm. there was a bunch of electric slides and cupid shuffles on camera <laughs> people dancing with cops um <laughs> cops kneeling with the protesters stuff like that and all those places where that happened, I didn't see anything happen that went as far as like what happened in um, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah. I haven't kept up with it and seen how much further it went. But I mean, they announced that they were going to introduce something about abolishing uh, the police. So I, I mean, I think it's very telling that the the places that people lot as um, the examples of how to protest correctly never get the results. But I also feel like uh, the reason I answered the original part of the question the way I did is because I think I would like people to even reframe questions like uh, differently like you know um, like I don't even want to ask anymore does does the um, rioting or looting work uh, like I, I want more people to ask um, people in power does it work is it worth it um, for society like, like does it work to just let people extrajudicially kill um, citizens based on uh, race largely and then just shield it just to keep a handful of civil servants uh, out of out of prison. Like, like for, for how many officers was it? Was it seven officers? Um, involved in the Jacob Blake shooting? Uh, no, no, not the Jacob Blake shooting, but the uh, George, George Floyd. Floyd shooting. I think there's four, four involved. Four, okay. Yeah. For, for four officers... Like, like I want to ask them if that works. Instead of people asking the people in the street, does does the rioting and looting work? Like, does that blueprint work? Like, the whole if you think about all the property damage and injuries and police manpower and jail time, like if you tied up the expense of everything that happened since George Floyd that was sparked off by that. Um, not just rights, but property damage, manpower, um, jail cells all that time. Like, per per officer, like, I, I just find it interesting that they don't pay these guys a ton of money, mm -hmm. but they're willing to spend as much, like, as much money as possible, I mean, in terms of what they lose to, uh, like, per person. That's, it had to be, like, millions of dollars per person that basically um per cop oh yeah and in, in, in damage easily yeah and but what's interesting i mean in with the officers that were responsible for george floyd's death uh they i think charges were brought against them like pretty quickly um and it wasn't sufficient to to you know quell an uprising and i think that's that's probably correct because you know you you can't just rely on like the occasional high profile situation where people actually get charged because what happens when there's no video and it's like yeah circumstance right uh, uh, the rioting started before they got they got charged mm. i guess it was like, um, it was very soon after right yeah yeah it, it was soon compared to like what we usually get i mean they they've let things go to like weeks 
like yeah. months before. Um, yeah, so like relatively, relatively speaking, um, this was one of the faster ones. But I think the reason why it was one of the faster ones was because it was a powder keg right away. Like they hit the ground running in um, Minneapolis. So, so I actually do think that this was one of the faster ones, but the rioting, uh, particularly in Minneapolis, but in other places too. The reason I remember that is because in New York, um, when what happened by me, they stormed the precinct and they like set cop cars on fire and went crazy. I remember when that happened, they were not charged yet. Um, mm. at, that, at that time, I remember in the news, they were showing pictures of the police standing in front of um, Derek Chauvin's house and guarding it and stuff while um, the city was burning. So, yeah, I do think it happened pretty fast, but I think the riots happened pretty fast as as well. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it, interesting because like some of the people in this discussion on Facebook were pointing to research on how like nonviolent protests are more effective at achieving their political goals. Um and there's like a bunch of controversy on Twitter yeah. about that research um, involving my friend Nathan and, and one of the authors of the paper, uh, Omar Wazow. And I don't know, it's like, it, it may be true that nonviolent protest is more effective, um, but like, it's also, it's not like the people who are doing the rioting and looting are, are like going to do like a literature review before they decide what to do about this. So if you really care about preventing looting yeah. or rioting like then having a more just justice system um and having systemic reforms that are what activists and protesters are asking for um putting those in place is the best way to actually like head these things off and and prevent something that you think is so destructive also it's very hard to figure out the extent to which like i would be interested in reading the paper because i think it also depends on how you um frame the data and what i mean by that is there were a lot of riots happening um in the 60s and the late 50s there were a lot of things popping up in different um cities and when things have been released through like foia and declassification you know like like where they declassify a lot of old fbi and government documents after the fact if you read things like the Kerner Commission report, you start realizing the extent to which they were really afraid of a race war. Um, they really, really thought there was a race war. The Kerner Commission was really believing that there was too much benign, benign neglect of black people. It was leading to like these people who felt like they had nothing to lose. Um, and there was also a sense, I know like... Um, LBJ, one of his worries was that like the people in the South were really going overboard with with their um, terroristic ways and this feeling that uh, they were going to push people into a state where they felt like they had nothing nothing to lose and that it would kind of hurt people. And again, I haven't read the study, so I don't know, but exactly how they framed their data. But it complicates things because then what happens is, um, and they had a scene like this they dramatized this in the movie selma selma's not a great movie but i think it is interesting that they, they dramatized this dynamic that i know from reading um was true but but there's there's a scene where malcolm x um goes to martin luther king's wife coretta scott king 
and says, um, you know, use me as like the or else or the, or the specter where yeah. it's like um, if they don't come to the table with you, they're going to have to deal with um, the violence, the uprising and, and things like that. So a lot of people really believe that what encouraged them to work with the peaceful side of the civil rights struggle was the other side of the, the riots in Watts, Chicago, New York, um, all these different uprisings, the Black Panthers shooting at at cops. Um, like, this idea that there was another side of the equation that they were um, afraid of. So I think we take that into account. It's hard to... Like, do you look at Martin Luther King or do you look at a, uh, a lot of these civil rights acts and stuff and just view them as the victory of peace or to what level um does the intimidation and the riot and stuff contribute to what on the surface looks like a peaceful solution i don't fully know the answer yeah you know like i don't want to discredit the paper on its face i just think that you know i'd be interested to know like how it frames the victories for peace because i think it's very hard to contextualize the whole picture yeah yeah i, I think i read a, like the abstract and, and about the paper i have not read it uh just to be totally candid but the different like the treatment is uh whether it rained in a given city um on a weekend where there were a lot of riots and so like in cities where it rained a lot there were less there was less rioting and then the outcome variable was a uh, vote share for uh nixon versus um i forget who he was running against in 1968 um and i think like the idea was that oh i just lost audio from you um so yeah when it was like the cities that had less rioting or like more nonviolent protests um had a higher share of votes for the democratic candidate um so it's like a very limited you know uh, outcome and you know we care about more than just electoral politics um, and the kind of implicit um, threat of violence might have actually been a thing that uh, motivated some of the some of the action yeah yeah so the wire uh, disconnected um, just so you know I'm going to probably have to leave in the next um, 10 minutes so okay. yeah if you um, so if you had anything you want to prioritize as far as talking about, I want to give you a heads up. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Um, yeah, I think um, I'm really curious to hear your theory about why Killmonger was right. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is a Black Panther Marvel uh, movie reference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that was um, that thing was so big at the time. I talked about it uh so much it used to be like in the tip of my tongue like and also at the tip of my well that's not a good metaphor I, well tip of the brain is not a thing uh but it was at the forefront of my mind like the details of the uh movie so forgive me it might be like rusty on remembering details of the movie but you know what i found really interesting about that movie in the killmonger thing right was um and i feel like a lot of people kind of feel this way including like like black people where they were kind of saying, okay, they said over and over, people who were anti-Killmonger, they were like, oh, 
um, he was he was taking the um, tactics of the oppressor, and he was just as bad as the oppressor or whatever. Uh, he was uh, using the the tactics of the oppressor against the oppressor, and that made him no better, and that's why he had to go. But then I'm like, okay, that's fine. By the end of the movie, Black Panther is meeting with uh, the world powers and sharing his technology with them, and he's letting the CIA in as, like, you know, his new best friend. So I'm like, if learning the ways of the oppressor from the CIA means Killmonger has to go, then why is the actual CIA that he learned it from? This guy was actually his head, his his training guy. He he, he Killmonger worked worked above him. Why is he? Why is it? Why are things negotiable uh, with him? And I was like, you guys don't really have problems with the oppressor's tactics. You just feel more comfortable with the white oppressor. Like 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 uh, if you guys were really against the tactics, you'd want Killmonger and then the white oppressors to be next. Like you know. Uh, Killmonger has to go. Now we're going to take out the CIA, too. So I'm like, you guys think you're against the oppressor's tactics or you're against it in principle, but you would just rather have... Oh, you're more comfortable with the white oppressor. Like, you know, you maybe you think um, the white oppressor would be more benevolent um, oppressor or whatever. So I think, to start off with the Killmonger thing, I think a lot of people were kind of disingenuous, even to themselves, about why... They didn't like Killmonger because I just found it very weird how cool they were with the CIA guy being there, how cool yeah. they were with um, the guy who killed, even if he's mind controlled, the guy who killed um, the old king is living in a hut. They're, they're like, fine. Like, suppose you know outsiders, but Bucky can be there, you know, like everything's like, 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 like forgivable, you know, um, and, but the, the amount of things that they'd never intervened on, you know, like uh, slavery is happening all around them as, you know, Europeans come and take all their neighbors and they just kind of kept quiet and said, you know, just don't say anything and everything will be fine. Like I find like really problematic. Uh, to me, if Killmonger wasn't at least right, he was no less wrong than any of the other people that, you know, people were treating as lesser, as a lesser evil, you know, and to my understanding, and I may be remembering this wrong, I don't think Killmonger was just against any and all white people. I think he, if I remember correctly, he um, was against like white supremacy and like, I don't think he just wanted indiscriminately um, just kill white people left and left and right. Um, I could be wrong i don't even think he was even for all black people because he was not he didn't have any problems killing like uh the rich powerful black people in wakanda who he thought were squandering their duty to um save people you know mm -hmm. so i mean to the extent that i saw his politics um elaborated you know i I, f I felt it was a populist revolution that he um, was fostering. I think a lot of the things they did to make him look worse were kind of cartoonish mustache twirling things that the writers included, like killing his girlfriend or killing like the other women, stuff that wasn't a necessary fundamental aspect of the politics. Like, like, like you don't need to just kill 
uh, random women left and right to um, to advance the agenda that he was uh, advancing. But then the other thing I would say, too, is if part of the appeal of this movie is that uh, it's feminist and it's um, treating women as very strong warriors and a warrior class on par with any any men out there and these women are supposed to be able to kick any man's ass and that's what makes Adora Milaje so cool then they were in a war like you know like if those were some guys in his personal guard that were part of the cannon fodder of um of Killmonger's of Killmonger's war like you wouldn't really be crying that hard about them you know so it's like these women are his personal bodyguards. They're they're warriors. It's it's a war. So I think it's kind of weird to kind of um, infantilize them or turn them into damsels in distress. You can't really have it um, both both ways. So yeah, yeah, that was kind of that was kind of my problem with it. I feel like the Killmonger thing I could have dealt with better if they weren't so forgiving and easygoing on the so-called. Uh, oppressors and colonizers like, like, like yeah. colonizers are almost like a jokey nickname that they're giving people you know yeah and, and, and the cia character is just like i guess within the movie the united states is like and, and the cia are not the bad guys right but like if you look at the yeah. history of africa um it, it it's honestly just offensive that the cia would play a positive role in in the film um given how many so, democratically elected leaders they participated in overthrowing or assassinating in but Africa. you know it's weird. Even in the movie, they do that because one thing that I think and I'm, that I thought was crazy about the movie is, I thought for sure Killmonger was going to cheat or something. But Killmonger beats the Black Panther totally fair and square. That's the part that blows my mind. He beats him fair and square. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't do anything. Like the Black Panther just loses. He doesn't do any type of um, underhanded low blows or anything. The the Black Panther loses fair and square, and then the Black Panthers followers recoup him uh and with the help of the cia agent uh reinstall him back so not <laughs> even just in real life in the movie they do that you know yeah. which is yeah. which is um nuts and that's another reason why i think um killmonger was 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 right is in that uh he even went by like their rules yeah you know yeah, yeah like the rules that that the good guys had in play and, yeah. and they took the victory away from him so yeah that it was it was a pretty interesting like i don't know how much of that stuff is a flaw or on purpose in the movie like you know as in um the movie wanted to kind of make it so it can go either way or or what but i mean i guess now we'll never know because uh r.i.p chadwick boseman you know, yeah but, it's super sad yeah. um yeah, yeah i have no idea what they're gonna do um I mean, yeah i have no idea either but i think they're gonna recast them i think yeah i think the role is too um important to them and I think for all the talk that a lot of Marvel fans have about, you know, it's disrespectful. I feel like those Marvel movies are like crack to a lot of people. If <laughs> they do a good enough trailer, they'll get over it. Um, oh yeah, I mean that movie fast. made like one point three billion dollars. Um, yeah, yeah, it made one point three billion dollars. They're not gonna leave that money on the table. I, you know, unfortunately, that's capitalism. They're not gonna leave it on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, cool. I, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, it, yeah, yeah, and and, and yeah. also sorry because I wasted a lot of the available time just with the with the tech issues. So you know, um, mm -hmm. I I ate up I I ate up a lot of time with that. But you guys, one more thing. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, I just uh, anything you wanted to mention, anything you wanted to plug. Uh, Champagne Sharks is is a great show. Um, I listened to a ton of episodes to prepare for this, and uh, you all find really great guests. You ask great questions, do a ton of reading for it. So I just want to shout that out, and uh, I'll post some of my favorite episodes in in the show notes as well. Oh, awesome! Definitely appreciate it. And you know what I would say to people is. You know, check out Champagne Sharks anywhere you listen to podcasts, but also go to our YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Champagne Sharks and you'll find um, our show up there. And what's cool about on YouTube, that's where we talk about more topical things, things that happen like just that day or things that will get stale in just a couple of days. So it's not just uh, a repeat of it's not just a repeat of what happens on the podcast, like during quarantine and all the time at home. We kind of got into live streaming and it's been it's been a lot of fun. So de- so definitely subscribe to us on on YouTube and check us out over there as well. Cool. I, yeah, I'd recommend it. And uh, if you're a patron, uh, you get access to the bonus episodes, which are like extended interviews and, and patron exclusive episodes and uh, also a discord uh, chat, which is a great community. Oh, yeah, yeah. Patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. Yeah, I'm horrible at this plugging thing. Like, like, yeah, no, you do. You do a good job at the beginning of the episode. So I can basically rehearse it, re- repeat it for you. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank cool. you. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, really had a fun conversation. And uh, thank you for yeah. having me. It was a great time. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.